Hello and welcome to The Long Short, a new podcast brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, focusing on the very latest insights on hedge funds and private credit. My name is Drew Nicholl. AIMA is the global representative of the alternative investment industry, with around 2,000 corporate members spread across 60 countries. Of these, our fund manager members account for approximately $2 trillion in hedge fund and private credit assets. Each bi-weekly episode of The Long Short will examine topical areas of interest from across the alternative investment industry, with news, views and analysis delivered by AIMA's global team, as well as a host of industry experts. So, whether you're a hedge fund or private credit industry veteran, a student of the industry, or just someone interested in learning more about hedge funds and private credit, this podcast will be your ideal companion to help navigate you through the long and short of this fascinating industry. Hello and welcome back to The Long Short. This week we're focusing on all things private credit and I have not one but two guests with me to discuss one of the fastest growing segments in the alternative universe. First up is Yiri Kroll, the global head of the Alternative Credit Council, which is an AIMA affiliate that has just published a new edition of Financing the Economy, which offers a yearly overview of the global private credit market. And in the second half of the episode, we will speak to Stan Kostov, a partner in the Global Leverage Finance Practice at Allen & Overy, which partnered with the ACC on this report. But first, Yuri, great to have you on the podcast. Hey, Drew, how are you? I'm good. So just to set the scene, can you tell our listeners a little bit about the ACC and the Financing the Economy research series? Sure. The ACC is a, an association, as you said, it's a, an affiliate, which is a, um, a rather fancy way of saying um, it's, it's a little a body within AMA um, and, and the broader AMA community, which looks after private credit managers. So these are asset managers uh, that lend to businesses, uh, infrastructure projects, real estate, and um, many other things like trade finance or uh, consumer credit as well. So it's a very broad group of asset managers uh, whose goal is really to provide financing to, to the real economy. As far as uh, the research series is concerned, uh, it was really the core around which the association was born. As we started to investigate um, the activity of uh, hedge fund managers back in 2014 in the direct lending market, we quickly realized we knew very little of it. And so we started the survey and that grew, uh, attracted a lot of um, uh, attention outside the hedge fund sector. And we've had great success with um, private equity and businesses that come from the long only space as well, who ended up joining us and, and formally establishing the ACC. And so it really is our flagship uh, publication, flagship um, activity um, around which a lot of other activities revolve, uh, especially our public advocacy work around um, regulatory interventions, uh, of which um, uh, we can talk about uh, a bit later. Great. Well, well, let's get straight into the findings of this year's report. Um, it had a clear ESG focus this year. Could you explain to us why that was and, and what the conclusions were? Every year, we try to achieve two things with the paper. One, to really take a snapshot of the broad market developments uh, to see what's happening in terms of deal sizes, the overall size of the industry, business volumes, um, as well as some other metrics such as leverage uh, that funds deploy. But then we also try to 
shine the light on some some new and significant developments um, and and themes that I believe are pertinent. And this year, ESG felt the right choice because there was an overall feeling that we have really reached a seismic shift in relation relation to ESG adoption. Um, you know, three years ago, uh, I think it would be a minority of managers that would have engaged in, um, in, in sort of deep ESG integration or even think about ESG themed loans or products. Whereas what we start to see anecdotally as well as um, through, through various press releases uh, was that there was a marked difference in the activity, partially caused by some regulatory developments in Europe, um, but by and large uh, led by the overall change in climate, pardon the pun, um, that 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 really accelerated during the COVID crisis. That's interesting. Then, so could you just talk us a little bit about what sort of those those big drivers of change are? You you alluded to a few there, and 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 sort of what is pushing ESG in the private credit markets today? First, it is attention to risk. There are certain risks that have. Uh, that, that do fall broadly under the ESG umbrella that, that may have been considered always as part of the sound underwriting process. That's the G. And, and I think this is something that, that is really perennial and, and uh, not something that is uh, that new in terms of what managers have been focusing on. But there are others and climate risk um, is one. Uh, there are many other um, what people would call or put under the rubric of headline risk, which would uh, include a lot of the uh, risks associated with the S, uh, the, the, the social element. And um, you also have a change in preferences of, of large institutional investors that, that correspond to this. So that's an important element. The other one is, of course, the broader social climate, as, as I mentioned, which is demonstrated not, not only by increased policy attention uh, to things like climate change um, and, and environment uh, protection, but also in actual regulatory intervention that has forced both asset managers as well as corporates to uh, pay attention to uh, all of these factors and really to, number one, provide much more transparency to the to the market and to the investor community, but then also focus on improving the, their business practices in some of those critical areas. So, so if I may, AMA obviously covers the uh, alternative investment sector in its broadest sense. And, and often when it comes to hedge funds, uh, it's, it's commonly said that the hedge funds are very good on the G in ESG, and that's something that historically they've been very focused on, and, and their uh, view is expanding outwards to the E and to the S. Is that also the same in private credit funds, or is there are they coming at it from a slightly different angle? Well, as I said, the, the G uh, has always been part of sound credit analysis, well-run businesses tend to perform well, tend to return money. So I think there are some similarities there, as well as with public markets, as you've pointed out. Um, you've seen activist investors being activists a long time before ESG was a, a, a term or was um, a concept that people would apply in the investing uh, world. So, so in, in some ways, there are similarities. In other ways, there are dissimilarities in the sense that ESG came a little later to private markets, 
primarily because data was uh, less available. But now that is changing and changing very rapidly. Um, and we as, as an association are actually working on, on that with our members as well as with other associations, especially in the private equity sector, to try to figure out how to improve um, both data gathering as well as data sharing um, in this space so, so that um, strategies can uh, really work on the basis of not just estimates, but um, well researched and, and, and sort of well gathered uh, data provided by the corporate issuers. Oh, well, I mean, it's, it's absolutely true that the ACC is playing its part in the data creation for private markets. And, and this survey uh, or the survey that underpins this report is, is sort of chock full of data points, uh, primarily on, on ESG, but also broadly on the market. Aside from the ESG angle, was there anything in the survey that, that stood out to you or maybe even surprised you? Well, every year I continue to say that the incredible growth of the industry uh, continues to surprise me because every year I expect that, that we're going to see a slowdown or something in the market that, that uh, creates a pause. And certainly COVID was such a moment when in the second quarter of 2020, we saw pretty much all activity grind to a halt. But that then changed very, very dramatically. We saw not only record asset raising and uh, capital deployment activity, but record borrower interest in the private credit product. So we're seeing private credit not just being a product that is there for those that cannot reach public markets or bank financing in the middle market space, but all issuers of all sizes, especially in the larger corporate sector that have access to other forms of finances, to more traditional forms of finances that are looking for the kinds of things only private credit can offer, which is flexibility, uh, speed, dealing with fewer counterparties, and uh, crucially also ability to deploy uh, capital and size. So when I saw the number that, that the, the estimate of annual business volume for 2020 to land somewhere close to 200 billion, I, I was really astounded because last year when we asked what managers would predict that number would be, uh, it was half that. So you can see that um, even in, in light of one of the worst economic crises that, that has hit the global economy, this sector was able to rebound extremely quickly and not just get back to what it was doing before, but, but really accelerate. And I think this is a real tribute to the resilience and the professionalism of, of the managers uh, in this space. Yeah, I completely agree, actually, because it was really astounding when, when I saw that data point as well, because when you consider, you know, as, as you point out, the disruption that went on in the early part of the year and then to, to rebound to such an extent that to, to exceed all estimates, I think, you know, really is testament to yeah. how far the industry has and, come in a relatively short space of time. And I, and I think w w one thing to point out, which is also quite interesting, is that when you, th there was a lot of government support, of course, um, and rightfully so, because it was the government that, that really shut down the economy. But the government support that was direct to various corporate issuers really concentrated on Again, large corporates, mainly through very central bank support programs, and then the very small businesses. And in large jurisdictions like the UK, for example, or the US, the middle market was by and large left out from, from any kind of direct financial support, again, other than the, the general programs like furlough and, and many other such things that, that applied across the economy. 
right? And the industry managed to rebound despite the, the lack of such direct government support. And, and I think that is that is the remarkable thing to, to me. Uh, and then again, you know, shows the, the, the fundamental resilience, the, the fact that as stresses continue or as we continue to experience stresses in the, in the real economy and the global financial crisis was one such large stress, instead of private credit retrenching private credit actually expands as other forms of finance retrench. And, and this is an extremely valuable thing, not just for the individual borrowers, but for the macro economy at large. And I, I think you're alluding to there what we sort of call in the UK, the, you know, the financing gap, which is this, this sort of forgotten middle ground between uh, the firms that, that maybe don't uh, or are not able to access traditional lending, but also don't get um, as you say, the government support, the, the sort of very small business support and a sort of this abandoned in the middle. And I know that's a topic that, that's very close to your heart and, and obviously something that will be a key area of interest for, for private credit going forward in, in where they can expand. So just sort of keeping with that topic for a moment, is there any particular headwinds or tailwinds that you think that we should be looking out for in this space or, or sort of broadly in alternatives? I think the tailwinds are structural, and so we will continue to, even if there's there's some fluctuation, so far the fluctuation has been mainly towards the upside, but even if there's some downside fluctuation, the trend is clearly upwards in terms of growth and expansion, because one, we are likely to see low, low expected returns from public market uh, fixed income allocations, right? I, I, I don't think interest rates will be able to rise. I don't think um, we will see uh, real rates uh, reach, you know, meaningful uh, levels of return that are, that are required for a lot of institutional investors. And so private credit will be an allocation that will continue to be extremely popular. And this is what we hear from very large institutional investors. They are um, moving away from public markets to private market allocations when it comes to uh, credit. There is a desire of borrowers to have a direct and, and flexible relationship, as I um, already mentioned. Life is simple uh, with a private credit manager. Uh, it, 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 it costs less to, to obtain the finance in terms of just the, the, the various services that are associated with it. It may be actually more costly from the um, financial perspective, from the coupon that's attached to the loan, um, but it's, it's, it's cheaper in the way that the loan is, is obtained compared to the underwriting process, for example, in the, in the public market. So, um, and, and as I said, the terms can be made to measure, uh, to, to really suit the, the individual borrowers, as opposed to terms that suit the overall market that, that may be uh, harmonized to, to, to suit the investor community. And then finally, it's the, the delivery of returns that, that is consistent, that, that will continue to build confidence in this space. Um, and, you know, just going back to, to the COVID crisis and, and how, um, you know, markets have rebounded, how um, the private credit managers supported the businesses that were part of their portfolio, helped them, provided them additional liquidity and allowed them to survive and therefore allow them to uh, continue to perform once we got out of the worst. Um, I think that's, a, that's an important element that, that continues to drive flows towards the um, uh, towards this asset class. There are headwinds though, and, and I'll mention one uh, that I consider to be uh, fairly important. That, that's regulation. Um, policymakers are very mindful that um, this sector is going to eclipse um, the banking sector as the main provider of finance. In some jurisdiction like the United States, that's been 
long the case, but but not everywhere else around the world. And there is a certain level of apprehension with respect to the regulatory treatment of this activity. Uh, many people feel that lending is banking, and so they're trying to look at this um, activity through the banking lens and are nervous that we don't have bank regulation for asset managers. And we were trying to reassure them that there are very good reasons and that the business model is, is very different and doesn't require the same types of intervention. But that doesn't stop people from, from trying to figure out whether there are either microprudential or macroprudential tools that need to be applied. So there's a global discussion at the moment at the Financial Stability Board level, at IOSCO level, um, that is really trying to first figure out what the market is, monitor and, and get some, some common definitions and have a sense of what the developments are, but potentially think about interventions. And there, Europe is probably furthest along, and we're uh, we're expecting uh, actually loan fund regulation to come out as part of the AIFMD review uh, that's expected to be published by the end of November. And, and that will have uh, some elements that, that, that are associated with the financial stability concerns that, that I just talked about. So um, regulators are thinking about how to ensure that there's good quality liquidity risk management, that leverage at the portfolio level is, is managed well, um, and that interlinkages between the private debt and the prudentially regulated sector, the banking sector, are such that if there were to be problems in the private debt sector, they wouldn't spill over to the, to the rest of the uh, uh, financial uh, economy. So, so we'll see how, how those concerns are going to be addressed and, and we are very active in trying to provide all the data uh, that's needed for, for the decision making to actually be based on, on proper evidence as opposed to um, you know unfounded feelings or um, or fears that that that, um, uh, that could create uh, interventions that are Counterproductive. I, I think the point you raised there on on the borrower's perspective and and the strong value proposition that private credit has that goes far beyond what you might you know the headline rates and the and the fees. I think that's such an important point, and and that really does come through in the report in the various case studies that that you feature. And I would encourage anyone who wants to understand uh, why it is that private credit is expanding at the rate it is. Uh, you know, despite the fact that traditional lending um, has long dominated this space, I would encourage them to look at those case studies in particular. Um, but we um, say otherwise, we almost got through a whole podcast there without mentioning regulation. Uh, unfortunately, it's a, a fact of life for us that uh, we never can go more than, you know, 20, 30 minutes without discussing it. And we will clearly have to have you back on uh, once those rules that you mentioned are finalised and once we have a, a clear review of, of what's coming down the pipe. Um, but, but Yuri, thank you so much for speaking to us here at The Long Short. Uh, we have to now go to a brief interlude before we introduce our next guest. Thanks for having me, Drew. The Alternative Credit Council and Simmons & Simmons are delighted to introduce a new research paper exploring the role of private credit in trade and commodities finance. Produced in partnership with TXF, this research provides investors with data and insights on the risk and return opportunities in the global trade finance market. Trade finance also offers a significant opportunity for borrowers seeking the tailored and flexible finance solutions needed to thrive and innovate. 
It is our hope that this research will help both investors and borrowers understand the potential of this market and how private credit can help fill the trade finance gap, which some now estimate to be greater than $2 trillion. If you'd like to learn more, please visit www.lendingforgrowth.org to download the full report. Welcome back. As promised, I'm delighted to introduce Stan Kostov, a partner in the Global Leverage Finance Practice at Allen & Overy, who partnered with the ACC on the report. Stan, welcome to the Longshore. Thank you, dear. So we left our conversation with Yiri commenting on the impressive growth of the private credit market in recent years, including in 2020. So to keep with that theme for a while longer, what was your impression of how the private credit market fared as an industry last year? Um, I think it fared really well. I think uh, private credit lenders are better equipped in, in many ways to handle periods of uncertainties, which is, I think, what your report showed as well. And it's particularly relevant during the COVID-19 crisis uh, because it's really enabled credit managers to negotiate terms and preserve capitals, uh, capital in a much better way than the syndicated market would have. I think it's really uh, a product of both the supply and demand in this uh, particular asset class. On the supply side, you have investors who are looking for higher yield and um, you know the, the private credit market is, is able to provide that. And on the uh, demand side, I think you definitely have a demand for easier um, and more flawless execution in terms of, uh, you know, closing deals. And the borrowers are looking for that in, in, in terms of, you know, when, when the market is um, facing uncertainty. And I think as your report showed, in, in the last year, you had about 200 billion of uh, fresh capital, which is uh, a lot more than we expected in, 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 in this context. And so you mentioned the report there and, and something else I wanted to touch upon uh, having a legal mind in the room is that from a legal perspective, how is ESG influencing the approach firms are taking towards loan documentation and, and deal terms? And what are the more challenging conversations for private credit managers around this? Yeah, um, I think... In the US, we're a little bit behind um, as compared to the UK and continental Europe. Uh, ESG is definitely making its way um, in, the, in the documentation of uh, loan documents, but it hasn't done so uh, to the same extent as uh, you, know, um, you would see in, um, in legal documents governed by English law or European continental law. And I think some of the challenges really um, come from the realization that, you know, I would say that ESG has been uh, really part of the risk assessment uh, for a long time um, for, for private credit providers, but it really hasn't been viewed as um, necessarily something that adds value. And I think, you know, a, a lot of it in the US is you would need to have more um, education and awareness to show how um, ESG can actually add value to, to, to this particular asset class. 
And it's interesting because we do often hear that Europe is uh, slightly ahead of the curve compared to other regions when it comes to ESG. But would you say that North America uh, is on that same journey and, and, and that education process is underway? Or do you think that uh, the ESG market still needs sort of a, a kickstart in that sense? I definitely think that we're on the same journey and I think we would, uh, we would get there. Um, but it, it, we, we need a little bit more time. Uh, I think, you know, one thing that I learned from, from your report is that in the uh, EU, um, there's regulations that kind of set standards for ESG. Um, this is not the case in the United States. And I think some sort of a common standard uh, that would guide this process and create some more common framework would, would definitely help in terms of, uh, you know, making this a, a more prevalent uh, approach in, in, in documentation. You preempted my next question perfectly there, which was to say, uh, you know, is, is the uh, you know, SFDR and, and similar regulations in Europe the main reason why Europe is ahead? And, and would something similar in North America uh, be that impetus for the industry to to move up to, to where EMEA is in, in that sense? Um, and, and, and so just to sort of put you on the spot a tiny bit then, do you think anything is coming down the pipe in that? I know there's lots of conversations around various aspects of ESG among US regulators, but um, I haven't seen anything yet that, that shows that something as comprehensive as an equivalent to, to SFDR is, is due anytime soon. What do you think? I don't think that it's going to come anytime soon. And I think part of the problem is that ESG, um, and this is, not necessarily a helpful outcome, but I think ESG in some ways is viewed as more political here in the US than it would be in Europe. So uh, I think we are further away um, in terms of um, coming up with specific regulations that would guide this framework, but it's definitely something that would help. So to the extent that this becomes more established in Europe, I think the US would probably follow um, through, but at this point, it's not something that I expect would happen in, in the near future. That's really interesting because uh, when I asked uh, Yuri in the first half of the podcast about uh, headwinds and tailwinds, he, he sort of indicated that regulation was sort of uh, both a headwind and a tailwind in a sense, that it had sort of boosted the, the ESG market in a sense. But uh, you know, as, as I'm sure all our listeners will know, uh, overzealous regulation can sometimes be more burdensome to, a, sure. to an industry than how it is helping. So it's, it really does seem to be a double-edged sword in that sense. Um, when I uh, also asked him around if there was anything that surprised him about the survey, uh, he said that the, the huge discrepancy between the predicted um, market growth uh, to what actually occurred over 2020 really stood out to him. Um, so to put the same question to you, um, was there anything from the survey that, that really surprised you? Yeah, I, mean, I think one thing that surprised me, and again, I have to caveat this with the fact that um, ESG is kind of in its infancy in, in the US market, is that it's not really... Um, the availability of data that um, that is the issue with implementing ESG. It's more an issue of convergence. And I've talked to uh, many of my colleagues about this, and they all agree that, you know, you can come up with many different frameworks um, that 
would give you data that would be helpful in some way, but it's difficult to really find a common set of data that um, that can be established throughout the market and that can be a common framework for everyone to follow. So that was very interesting to me. I, in my experience, um, obtaining the data has also been an issue, but I think the agreement in the market is that we just need to really come up with some sort of a common framework that works for everyone. And if we do that, I think a lot of uh, a lot more private credit providers would kind of um, join this trend. And so I think it's fair to say that the report overall paints a fairly positive review of where the industry is today. And, and obviously ESG is a major component of uh, what the industry's future will be in, in, in shaping the private credit market. But where do you think we're going from here? You know, we, we, we hear these quite uh, positive stories about growth and development, new players coming into the market. Is, is everything bullish? Is, is there any thing that we should, you know, that should temper those predictions a little bit? No, I mean, I think um, as long as the private credit market continues to grow, and I, I see no reason why it wouldn't. I mean, it, just to put this in perspective, you know, um, in 2005, at least in the US, uh, the private credit market consisted of about 5% of the overall financing market. And at this point, we're seeing like 25 to 30%. And like I said, um, because of the um, advantages um, that the private credit market has to offer as compared to the syndicated market, in particular, just ease of execution, customization, and on the other side, a better yield uh, for the investors than a syndicated loan or a fixed product would provide. Um, you know, we can expect that the private credit market would continue to grow. So I think as long as the private credit market continues to grow, um, I anticipate that the implementation of uh, ESG will also be a part of that. There is no reason uh, why it wouldn't. I think that, like I said, the challenge there would be to really um, change the focus from really just focusing on um, it being a part of the risk credit analysis and really seeing how this can add value to, to, to your investment, which is something that we haven't been able to accomplish at this point yet. No, that's exactly right. And I think that that really is a, a crucial part in the evolution of ESG as, as something that was, you know, maybe just on the on the risk management side or sort of uh, a secondary process to something that is integral throughout uh, the deal making process, you know, top to bottom, front to back. And, and I think we're already starting to see uh, that come into play, uh, you know, among certain uh, forward looking players in this space. Um, and, and we could go on, but before I let you go, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners uh, on the report or, or any other predictions about where the industry as a whole is going? Um, no, I, I think that, you know, the report is very accurate in terms of um, stating where we are in, in, uh, in, our, in the current time. And, you know, it's uh, in terms of Europe, I think um, you guys are a little bit ahead and we have some catching up to do, but uh, um, I don't see a reason why the US 
will not be able to catch up in the next year or two. I think it, it's definitely become, um, ESG has definitely become a focus for us and we see uh, how it can um, improve uh, the returns for our clients. So we would expect um, this to continue to be a heightened focus in the future. Well, we'll have to have you back on next year and we'll see how that uh, that plays out and, and, and see if you're right. Great. Thank you. <laughs> well, as to say, uh, unfortunately, that is all we have time for. So all that's left for me to do is give a big thank you to both our guests on today's episode, uh, Yuri Kroll of the ACC and Stan Kostov of Allen & Overy. The Financing the Economy report is available to download from acc.ama.org. The Long Short was brought to you by AMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative of the alternative investment industry. In our next episode, we'll be joined by the US Alternative Investment Consulting Team at KPMG to discuss a new collaborative research project which looks at how the industry is evolving its business model as the world exits the COVID-19 pandemic. New episodes of The Long Short are available every other Wednesday at AMA.org and you can subscribe at Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon.